Nima Well, good morning. Um, this is a great joy to be here. Uh, my name is John T. Um, and I am uh, one of the pastors at a church in central London called the Globe Church, um, which we planted seven years ago. Um, and it's a real privilege to come and share with you for these couple of days. And, and I come, in one sense, in, in slight trepidation, thinking we're, we're all involved in ministry of all sorts, and I'm aware there's a huge amount of experience and wisdom in this room. Um, and so what I want us to do, I'm, I'm not coming claiming to be some expert on Daniel or some um, brilliant uh, pastor. I, I'm coming as a brother to say, let me remind you of a few, a few things and let's help each other to do this work God's given us better. Because one thing is definitely true, there's no one in this room who can't improve, who can't grow, who can't learn who can't grow in their faith and their love and their worship of Jesus. So that's, that's my conviction as we come to study this book of Daniel and to learn from it uh, together. Now, as uh, David has said, the way we're going to do it is we're going to split it in half, Daniel 1 to 6 and Daniel uh, 7 to 12. I'm going to take us through Daniel 1 to 6. Robin's going to take us through Daniel 7 to 12. It does remind me of um, the, first time I, the first sermon I ever preached as a young assistant pastor. I was only 22, I think. And the first passage I was ever given was Revelation chapter 6 and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It was terrific. And um, it was my first sermon. And as the reading was read, I felt this wave of sympathy from from the congregation. This kind of, I can't believe that the pastor's given him this. This is so unkind. And... um, and basically, if you said anything that made any sense, people were <laughs> amazed. I'm aware this, this week that the wave of sympathy is very much with Robin uh, <laughs> as we look at Daniel. Um, <laughs> but the reason we split it like this is because we don't just want to get to know Daniel. We want to think about some principles um, of teaching the Bible. And in the three sessions that I have, I, I want us to take... One principle in each session, and then look at Daniel together, particularly principles around teaching narrative. How do we teach narrative well? Those are some of the things we're going to think about. Let me just say a couple of comments on the structure of the book of Daniel. Um, Many of you will know this. I I sort of want to justify why we're splitting it 1 to 6, 7 to 12, because many of you will be aware that may not be the most obvious way to split it. Um, the book of Daniel is written in two languages. Chapter 1 and chapters 8 to 12 are written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 to 7 are written in Aramaic. Which immediately means there's probably something there structurally that Daniel is wanting us to understand in this book. Particularly when you look at chapters 2 to 7, there then seems to be some structural integrity there. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 both have Um, four nations, four beasts in chapter 7, four nations in chapter 2. We're going to see both of those chapters today. Robin's going to do chapter 7, then I'm going to do chapter 2, so wrong way around. But we'll see those two. Then in chapters 3 and chapter 6, you get the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. So again, you get an intense trial. And then in chapters 4 and 5, you have two proud kings who are humbled. 
Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and Belshazzar in chapter 5. So there seems to be some logical integrity to chapters 2 to 7, which I think is helpful for us to see. I'm not convinced that it massively helps in preaching it, other than to see the, the, what's going on and some of the big themes that Daniel is wanting us to see. Faithfulness under trial, the humbling of proud kings. You know, these sorts of themes are big in the book of Daniel. But the reason we split it the way we have is because we want to focus on narrative and then on the apocalyptic stuff in the second half. And, da- and chapter 7 best, definitely functions as a sort of bridge between the two. It sums up chapters 1 to 6 and it sets up chapters uh, 8 to 12. So I hope you'll go with, um, go with us on that structure. Um, but just to make you aware of that. But let's, let's start with Daniel chapter 1. Why don't we read? Let me read it. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and then we will um, have a think to, through together some principles, and then we'll have a look at the details of the passage. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was, to teach them the king's, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge an understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, why don't we pray? Let's pray, and then we'll um, think together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that this is the word that you inspired by your spirit. Thank you it was written down for us, that we might know you and adore you and trust you and obey you. So please give us hearts that are ready to listen, hearts that are ready to obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start with, um, start with a principle on preaching narrative. I guess all of us have one time or another been involved in teaching narrative in some way. What are the particular challenges? What are the particular struggles or joys of teaching narrative? Okay, here's the, here's the principle. We'll take one principle each session. Um, here's the first principle. Um, it's a story. I appreciate that stating the obvious. But you do have to ask yourself, why does God give us so many stories? God could have given us a systematic theology book with everything we needed to know, right? Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to believe. Here's what you need to do. Get on with it. And, and yet, instead, he gave us stories, hundreds of them, beautiful stories, dramatic, powerful, exciting stories. Why? And I guess instinctively, our reaction to that might be, he gave us stories because we sort of like stories. We relate to stories. They emotionally engage us. They help us to understand not just abstract truth, but more solid, real truth. We see real lives. And that may be our instinctive reaction when we think this is why God gave us stories. And I think those things are true, but I think there's a bigger reason. And the reason is because this is our story. Because God is working out his one great story, which we are part of. In other words, when we read in the Bible about the people of God, we're reading about our ancestors. We're reading about our forefathers. We're to read it as our history. So that... um, that program that's been around for ages now, the Who Do You Think You Are program where people trace back their family tree and they find this little cobbler called Frank Bloggs in this little back street of Millwall. And there he is doing his little cobbling in 1732. And suddenly, the, this person, this celebrity who's learning about this person from there, they're fascinated by this person. Why? Who cares about Frank Bloggs cobbling shoes in Millwall? Who cares? Well, I care because it's my story. And suddenly I'm connected to this person because it's part of my story. And as we read the Bible, I think that that's how we're supposed to read it. This is why the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will talk about Abraham as our forefather. What should we say then our forefather Abraham discovered in this matter? 
This isn't just the story of the Jews. It's not just the story of Israel. It is our story. And that is why I think more profoundly than just here are some nice stories we can learn lessons from, here is our story that we can understand who we are and who God is from. Which means when you read narrative, what you are looking for is points of contact, points of correspondence between what we are reading and our story. Now, interestingly, actually you do this automatically with every story that you read. Not just the Bible, we're constantly doing this. We hear a story and we're thinking all the time, how does that story correspond with me? What are the connection points? This is actually what we would call typology. Right? So typology, when we're talking about um, that looking for types and patterns, sometimes... I don't know how much you know about typology. I'm going to assume you know a little bit and you've heard of it before. Um, Sometimes typology can be reduced to looking for strange, fascinating little details that somehow link to Jesus. Oh, here's some wood. The cross was made of wood. That must be, like, connected. And we become quite suspicious of that, right? Here's something red. Jesus' blood was red. Boom! Boom! Got a sermon. And I think we can rightly sort of go, that feels sometimes like we're going, wow, where's the control on that? How do I decide if that's real or not? Whereas typology, actually, the, the word type, it is patterns, examples. You are looking for patterns that God, because he is a God of consistency and faithfulness, he acts in ways that are consistent and faithful. And so we should expect to see patterns happening. And that is what typology means. That is, where, that is why when I see a frog hopping along, it's interesting to me, and I go, oh look, that frog's hopping But when I see a child learning to walk, I'm more fascinated in it because there is a correspondence between me and the child that I don't hop like a frog. I don't want to hop like a frog. I have no interest in it. So I can watch it, but when I see a child learning to walk, I'm like, that's that's like how I learn to walk. You see, there's a connection, right? There's a correspondence. And this is the way typology works. This is why we teach story. Because we're showing people those connection points, those correspondence is. So, for example, let me give you an example from Daniel chapter 1. When you read about Babylon, Babylon is a big deal. We're not making fanciful jumps when we think, what does Babylon mean? And to teach Daniel with no understanding of the bigger context of what Babylon means. There's only one city in the Bible that is mentioned more than Babylon. And that is Jerusalem. Well, here they both are, Babylon and Jerusalem, right here in the start of Daniel. 
Which means you've got to begin to think in that bigger, broader, Bible sweep correspondence, Babylon. Babylon, first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. The place that becomes the big type, the pattern, the example of a hostile city to God. When you read Babylon, you know what you're dealing with, right? You're dealing with enmity, hostility, hatred toward God, human arrogance, human pride. And you trace that all the way through. And you discover the New Testament writers writing to the church in Babylon. That's how they talk. Until you get to the end of Revelation and you see Babylon, the fall of Babylon. Not the physical city that we're talking about in Daniel, but the whole system of the world in rebellion against God. And this great call to God's people, come out of Babylon, do not share in her sins. So you're looking for correspondence. I hope this is, is making sense. You're, you're looking for those connection points where you say, this it helps me to understand how I relate to this story. You see, this is more than just, um, oh, here's Daniel. He seems like a good guy. Let me try and copy him. This is more than just Daniel as the example. This is Daniel as our ancestor who fits into this great story. And of course, when you think of this great story, you cannot avoid the reality that the center point of that story is the person of Jesus Christ. That this story that Daniel is building is building to its climax in the person of the Lord Jesus. And we live then in that ongoing story. So you have to ask at every point, what is the correspondence? What is the link between what's happening here? The greater story that's happening in Jesus and how we then fit into that story. It's part of our story. So take, um, let me just give you another example. I, I, I know I'm hammering this, but I, I just want us to see this, and then we'll try and get into Daniel. Um, take Abraham for a second. So I think it's quite clear to see this with Abraham. In Genesis 12, God makes promises to Abraham. Yes, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. God makes these great promises to Abraham. And this, now he is our forefather. We are inheritors of those promises. But of course that story is woven together and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So um, in Galatians, Paul says that those promises spoken to Abraham were actually spoken to Abraham's seed. Not seeds, but seed. Who is the seed? It's Jesus. And so now you've got to understand those promises were the father speaking to his son. Now listen to the promise. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation and all nations will be blessed through you. That is a promise of the father to the son. So now you understand that our forefather Abraham was a foreshadowing, a type of Jesus. That's the correspondence. And we are now inheritors of that promise through him. And so we're trying to weave together this big story and show people where they fit and how they fit. Not just, here's Daniel, be like him, dare to be a Daniel, be brave like Daniel. 
But here's Daniel, our forerunner in the story. Let's see his part of the story and where we're now at. We can talk some more about that and um, feel free to come and grab me in one of the coffee breaks and we can, we can work that through. Um, so let's, let's um, get into the, the story of Daniel. And I just want to set up um, a bit of Daniel chapter 1 and, and work our way through this in our remaining time. Uh, Daniel um, was living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been warned over and over and over again by God through the prophets that rebellion will bring judgment, and then that judgment comes. And if we just work through the story, there there are four big moves, I think, in this story. Let me just take you through what happens. Four big moves in Daniel chapter one. The first is that you see God rules the nations. Verses 1 and 2, God rules the nations. At first sight, it doesn't look like that. Because at first sight, it very much looks like Babylon rules Jerusalem, doesn't it? Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem. And again, we've got to be very careful with these Old Testament stories that we don't um, kind of shrink into a Disney-fied version. You know the Disney-fied version of um, of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the kind of panto baddie. Um, actually, Nebuchadnezzar was horrific. He was brutal, absolutely brutal. Um, if you just listen to this from 2 Chronicles 36, uh, feel free to turn there if you want to. 2 Chronicles 36, um, listen to what we're told um, about, about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, it's probably worth saying that there were three waves of attack from Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel would have been taken into exile in that first wave. He was the first group taken into exile. So he was taken before Jerusalem finally fell. He was taken into Jerusalem. But just, look at, uh, just listen to this. Um, chapter 30, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 17. Um, God brought up against Jerusalem the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value. It was a bloodbath. You've got to understand that Daniel was... 15, 16 years old. He's taken out of Jerusalem. He's taken to Babylon. And then he hears these reports of the city just being destroyed. All of the people he loves killed. All of his identity, all of his home destroyed, burned. It's brutal. Habakkuk speaks of the brutality of the Babylonians. They just keep killing and killing and killing. Nebuchadnezzar is not a fun baddie. He's not a kind of Disney villain. He is a ruthless, brutal dictator. But verse 2 is just so striking in Daniel, isn't it? It was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim into his hands. It was the Lord who did this. 
It wasn't the Babylonian gods winning over the Israel God. It was Yahweh, the Lord, delivering his people. As he said he would, as he had consistently said he would, here is the God who is faithful to his promise, his promise to judge. Do you wonder sometimes whether we have that sort of a view of God? Do we have a big enough view of this God? Not simply a God who smiles and loves and is, so it turns a blind eye, but a God who takes repeated sin seriously. A God who brings judgment, even using the wickedness of Babylon. Let me try and um, paint a picture for you in your minds. Um, I was going to bring this in physically, but I, I didn't have all the bits I needed, and my hand luggage was quite small on the plane. Um, I want you to imagine a very small uh, little teddy bear, about this big. And um, this is Daniel. And then you have a, a big teddy bear, about this big. Right, this is Nebuchadnezzar. And as little bear looks at big bear, you can imagine he's pretty terrified. Big Bear seems extraordinarily strong. Big Bear stomps around and does everything that it wants. Big Bear destroys, it takes what it wants, it rules, it wins. Big Bear seems unstoppable. But what we're going to see in the book of Daniel, and if you want one image for the book of Daniel, I think, I think this is helpful, is that behind Big Bear stands Great Bear stands the Lord, the one who's sovereign. And if Daniel simply looks at Big Bear, he will be terrified. But what the book of Daniel shows us is that faithfulness in exile is only possible when you lift your eyes and see Great Bear. See the one who truly rules. Because if you're looking at Big Bear, if you're looking at the strength of the enemy, it seems too strong, it seems too powerful. As I look around the world today, I see powers that seem too strong. I feel like a little bear. I feel weak and I feel small. And there seem to be powers that are too big for me. The book of Daniel says, but the Lord reigns. Behind Big Bear, behind every Big Bear is the Great Bear is Yahweh. And he is carrying out his purposes. Do we believe that? There is no human power, not even Nebuchadnezzar, not even Putin, not even what is going on in the superpowers of our world today that the Lord does not stand behind and above and over and rule through. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, the Lord rules. And that's the backdrop. There is horrific um, experience that Daniel has been through. But the Lord rules. And so as we set off now to to close in on Daniel in Babylon, let's now see the second big move. We move from the Lord reigning. And what we see is Babylon seeking to exert its influence, seeking to squash and mold and conform Daniel to its likeness. So the king orders Aspenaz to 
What he's trying to do is he's trying to get control of this new rabble who've turned up in Babylon. And it's fascinating to see how he does it. Tell me this doesn't sound like the world today. They go for the elite. They go for the influencer. They go for the one who's got the most power. They go for the ones... Look at the specifics. We want people who have status. Royal family, nobility. We want status. We, We love that. Not only do we want status, we also want physical impressiveness. We want people who are handsome, well-built. Not only do we want that, we want those who are intelligent. And you get that mix. You say, let's find those people. So those are the ones who are targeted. And then look what, we, what they do to them. They teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So they begin to indoctrinate, they begin to, this, this moment of socialization where this group is now beginning to be assimilated within Babylon. If we can now take these people and make them into Babylonians, we will have ourselves control over all of the Israelites. Because if we can just win these ones, we've got control. And so they begin to teach them the language and the literature. They begin to woo them with all of the luxury. You can have food and wine from the king's table. Nice. And they begin to obliterate their previous identity as they change their names. It's a fascinating insight into the methods of Babylon upon God's people. The way Babylon seeks to influence God's people and to shape them. And to be honest, if I was Daniel, I think I'd be quite tempted by it. Because to be honest, the Lord sort of let me down. I'm only 16. I remember Jerusalem. I remember that place that was my home. I remember that place where I felt secure. I knew who I was. But where was God when Babylon came? Where was Yahweh? Where was the Lord who was supposed to protect us? Where's the one who's promised us all this stuff? Where was he? Perhaps Babylon's not so bad. There's some good stuff to enjoy here. I have an opportunity here to get some status and some power and some influence, some luxury, some comfort. You can see this is intoxicating, can't you? And we've got to understand this is what Babylon is doing. And this is still the way our world works today, isn't it? Our world, Babylon, in which we live, is still seeking. It's seeking out those who are the most impressive, and it is seeking to treat and to train them in a model of thinking that is anti-God, that is about luxury and status and power. You can have it all if you just, if you just do things our way. I see this in London all the time. Why is it that city firms offer so much to young graduates? Intoxicating the power. Come on. We'll feed you. We'll we'll, we'll take you on the... We'll give you amazing opportunities. Because if you can win those who are going to be leaders and are going to be influencers, then you win the nation. 
So you've got to see what's going on. The interesting thing is that Daniel and his friends, they don't retreat. They don't run. They don't shut their ears and go, no, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. They don't refuse the names. Why? Is it because they're being sucked in? No. It's because they're doing what God told them to. You see, Daniel was here. Let's call this Babylon. Daniel was here in Babylon. Back in Jerusalem, there is a prophet called Jeremiah. Jeremiah's preaching to the people. He's saying, you've blown it. You've failed. You have been unfaithful to God. And he is now bringing his judgment. One wave already gone. And so Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles, to Daniel. You read it in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, this is what God, through Jeremiah, told the people in exile to do. This is the letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of this city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they encourage, you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come and fulfill my promise and bring you back. Daniel gets this letter and he says, okay, this is what God is telling us to do. We're not, supposed to re- we're not supposed to retreat and sit in a little cave and hide. We're supposed to get involved. This is where God has put us for 70 years. This is, a, this is it. So engage. Engage in the city. Engage in Babylon. Engage with what is happening. Because God has put you there. It's not an accident. That's the second big move. Babylon seeks to squeeze them into a mold, but they're to engage there. But then comes the third big move. We need to speed up. I knew this was going to happen. The third big move is that Daniel resolves. Daniel resolves. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And this is where the commentators um, give you all sorts of different options. What's going on there? Why? Some people say that it's because it was against the Jewish uh, food laws of Leviticus. There were certain foods you weren't allowed to eat. Perhaps they were being asked to eat that and they defile themselves. Maybe... But there was no laws about wine, so that may not be the case. Some people say it's because this has been offered to idols, this has been involved in pagan worship, and therefore Daniel would sort of involve himself in pagan worship. Maybe. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. That, that's, that. It doesn't say that. I wonder if perhaps what's going on is Daniel just knows that this is where loyalty is on the line. That for him... 
He can engage in Babylon. He can learn Babylonian language. He can learn the literature. He can take a Babylonian name, but he will not let his heart be won. He will not let his heart be won by Babylon. And he knows that food and wine, to indulge in the food and wine of Babylon, will defile his heart. Because he knows that this is the line which he draws in the sand that says, I go from being a servant of Yahweh who is faithful to the Lord to suddenly becoming someone who looks to Babylon and looks to Nebuchadnezzar as my provider. And so I think what is going on is Daniel saying, I will engage in Babylon, but I will not indulge in Babylon. That is what faithfulness looks like. And as the book of Daniel is written, it's almost certainly written to those who post-exile are trying to work out what does it look like to be faithful to God? What does it look like for God's people to be faithful? This is what it looks like. You make sure that your heart is loyal to the God who loves you and who provides for you. If Daniel is looking at Big Bear, all he can see is what Big Bear can offer him. Big Bear, will you provide for me? Will you care for me? Will you give me food and drink? Will you look after me? And Daniel says, no, Big Bear, you're not my God. He looks beyond to the God of heaven and says, no, I will... You are still my provider. I will trust what you say. Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, you've told me how I'm to live in Babylon. I will be faithful and I will wait for 70 years until you provide. And so Daniel asks if he can just eat vegetables. This is not a vegetarian sort of like propaganda story. <laughs> this is, oh, there's man in London. Seriously, it's veganism is... Whew, through the roof. We do all our meals are vegan now because it's too much hassle to make anything else. Anyway, another story. Anyway, um, so uh, this, is, this is Daniel saying, I, I, I want to be loyal, loyal to God. Um, he's very polite about it. He's not bolshy. He says, would you mind if we did this? Could you put me to the test? They eat vegetables. And then the fourth move in this story, and we're running out of time, is vindication. He's vindicated. His loyalty to God is vindicated. God does protect him. God does provide for him. God does care for him. And here's this move then that we've watched. The Lord reigns. Babylon seeks to mold. Daniel resolves and the Lord vindicates as we move through this story. But of course, we'd make a mistake if we simply went, and so should we. Let's all be like Daniel. Because you know as well as I do that we fail all the time. And actually what Daniel is pointing us to first and foremost is the one who is the greater Daniel. The one who came from the heavenly Jerusalem, from, from heaven itself into this Babylon world. A world where he experienced the hostility of human beings. Where he could have had everything, Right? Jesus could have had the world. He could have indulged everything. And yet he didn't. 
And we see in Jesus the one who engages fully with this world but never indulges in this world. He walks that line perfectly. Doesn't that make you want to worship him? Never once did he do a miracle for his own benefit. Never once did he go, oh, I'm too tired to go and get a drink of water from the tap. I'll just have one here. Never once. Never once did he seek to do it for himself. He never once indulged, but he was fully engaged with people. And it's this Jesus who shows us how to live the life of faithful service to Yahweh, to the Lord. It's this Jesus who went to the cross, who died for our unfaithfulness, who forgives, who restores, who was vindicated, and is the one who promises us vindication as we seek to live for him. There's so much more that could be said. We've run out of time. We'll pick up some more later. Um, I hope it's given you a flavor. But perhaps just as we sing this last song, it would be wrong, wouldn't it, just to kind of race through and go, that was interesting. Because every single one of us in this room, we've crossed that line, haven't we? Every single one of us have moved from engaging to indulging. All of us have been wooed by the offers of Babylon. That's why we need a savior. And perhaps even today, we need to confess that and say, Lord, I, don't, I want to have a heart that engages but doesn't indulge. I want to have a heart that's faithful to you. Why don't I pray and then we're going to sing. Father, we thank you so much that you rule. We thank you that as we read this story of Daniel, it's not just an interesting story, it's our story. This is the story we're caught up in. We thank you so much for our faithful King Jesus, who even more than Daniel, walked that line, lived that life of faithfulness under the most intense and harsh brutality. Father, we pray that we would lift our eyes beyond those things of this world that would terrify us or would captivate us and that we would see you alone, the one who rules, the one who provides, the one who loves. Lord, help us to be faithful men and women, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nima.